Okay, I, I know that last time we did this, Heather said, we'll be back in September of 2019. And I was like, uh, I wouldn't say that. That's pushing it. We'll be back in October. And she said, that's crazy. And then I made a joke about December. That's when we would start back uh, of 2019. Well, here we are, the end of January in 2020. And... Uh, we're not starting back, but I have good news-ish for you. We have two special episodes coming up. One, S-Town, which is one of our favorite podcasts, of course. Um, you know, It's right outside of the town where we live and record this podcast, which is crazy because it seems like a million miles away. But either way, we have been fortunate enough to spend time with many of the people that you know from the S-Town podcast and many of John B.'s friends, and we're going to do a special episode with them on suicide, a lot of stories that you haven't heard from the podcast about John B., um, how the podcast has affected that town, and so many of the people that we have now become friends with. I cannot wait for you guys to hear it. It will be coming up shortly. In the meantime, we have an update to a podcast that we did very early on, an interview with Anthony Ray Hinton, because now the movie Just Mercy is out, based on, of course, Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. Anthony Ray Hinton is featured in that as, of course, Ray. Uh, he also has a book out, The Sun Does Shine. Both of those books, Just Mercy, Sun Does Shine, go get them now if you haven't, and go see the movie Just Mercy if you haven't done that. But we want to bring Ray back in, kind of catch up where he is now, and this was one of the most powerful interviews we've ever done. It's not exactly Progressive South, because Heather uh, unfortunately wasn't able to join us, and so it's my brother, Reed, and myself. We do a radio show called Oh Brother Radio and Birmingham Mountain Radio, and so you're going to be hearing simply from that, but we wanted to put this out on this platform so you guys could hear it, so please enjoy. We'll be back with regular episodes. Oh, before you know it, I say September or December of 2021. It's Birmingham Mountain Radio, 107.3 FM in Birmingham, 92.3 Pelham, and BMMountainRadio.com all over the place. Hopefully you guys are all tuned in tonight for what is uh, guaranteed to be a special A very special Oh Brother Radio. Oh my God. And it's happening after school, so it's an after school special. That's a, that's a great point. The way you said Thank it kind of sounded like a Christmas special or something, which it's not. It's just very special. Yeah, it's just very special. That's though. all I know. It is indeed. Did you bring your book to get it signed? No. I didn't. You know, I don't ask for autographs. Uh-huh. Uh, you demand them. I demand them. That's exactly right. No, 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 I don't ever. It's right. just not a thing. If a, ch- if a child wants one, I'll say, oh, yeah. Sure. But, um, yeah, but I thought for this occasion, 
bringing the book yeah. because not only is he the author of the book, but he's the subject and the story is insane and mm-hmm. he's such an inspiration. Sure. Um, we're talking about Anthony Ray Hinton, who is here in the studio with us and will be joining us shortly. I, you know, hopefully, as I posted earlier on Facebook, I, hopefully people have either seen or read Just Mercy. Right, yeah. And if you have, you will know about Ray. Uh, and hopefully you have already read his book, The Sun Does Shine. Mm-hmm. And if not, go ahead and... If you haven't, stop listening right now. And well, no, to listen. Oh. And then. Oh, then. Okay. Then. Or even just while you're listening. Yeah. Maybe at that point. Try to read the book. No, order it. Oh, if I If they see. don't have it. Order it. Buy it. Yeah. And buy a copy of Just Mercy if you don't own that. Yeah. So Ray spent 30 years on death row. For a crime that he didn't commit, mm-hmm. and uh, that has been proven. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, go, I, well, that was good, argued to good us news. by one person once. But yeah, I, good I, news. You don't have to prove that you didn't commit a crime. It's up to the state to prove that you committed it, and they uh, didn't. Yeah. They they thought they had. They put him on death row. Turned out, no, you didn't. And what's interesting about this is the last time we talked to Ray. It was one of the first interviews he'd done. So there was no, like, mm. there wasn't a bunch of prep we could do as far as outside of, like, reading articles, which we did. Right. Um, but we had never met him before. It was a little over two years ago. And we sat down for one full hour and talked to him and learned about the case from him firsthand. Mm-hmm. So really, I mean, the book, as you read it, it's so much of it is word for word kind of what we talked about last time. Right. That he was here. And so at that point, I mean, I was going into it like, I trust Dr. Austad who had brought Ray to us, and he seems to think he actually did not commit the crime. Oh, and, sure. Right, but at that time, I'm just saying I didn't. Oh, right. I was, like, wanting to hear, like, well, tell us, why would they even arrest you then? Mm-hmm. And all that kind of... So, but now, since then, so much has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie, obviously, is out, but, but beyond that, like, reading his book and looking over the transcripts from the trial and the evidence that they, the very little evidence that they had that yeah. now has been proven to not be correct. Sure, yeah. Um, and the ways in which they failed to, you know, thoroughly investigate and utilize, you know, mitigating evidence. Correct. Really disappointing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, you know, and he was just such an inspiration that night as far as being funny and mm-hmm. the way he's able to, I don't know, still have... Uh, uh, yeah, not just hope. be extremely angry all the time. It's really impressive that he's uh, a pleasant person to be around, uh, given what he's been through. It seems like it would be pretty easy to get jaded pretty quick. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. His best friend, um, Lester Bailey, is here as well, Yep, which he's awesome and has stuck by race from the beginning. They were best friends kind of growing up, yeah. and, and uh, he stuck, through him, stuck with him through the entire uh, 30 years there on death row. And of course, um, if you've seen Just Mercy or any of the footage from when Ray was released, that's, you know, Lester Bailey right there with him by right. his side the whole time. So he's here as well. Dr. Ostad is here as well. And um, this is going to be interesting. It's yeah, going to be I, ever, a lot of questions. Absolutely. If anyone ever tries to hatch a theory that Lester Bailey and mm-hmm. Ray Hinton are the same person, that, that theory is not going to work. Because oh, yeah. the minute someone says, have you ever seen them in the same place at the same time? The answer is yes. Always. All the time. Always. They are always together. It's a really impressive uh, testament to their friendship. Yeah. Dr. Osteg got to go to one of the premieres of Just Mercy as Ray's guest, but I guarantee you it was a plus two. Yeah, 100%. It it had to be Dr. Osteg and Lester Lester Bailey. Bailey. Yeah, Yeah. He's a a good friend. And Michael B. Jordan. That's... uh, 
Oh, that's right. Yeah. He was there. Oh, that's and pretty cool. And Brian mm-hmm. Stevenson. Mm-hmm. They were there. Yeah. And wow. probably the guy from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah, boy, he's good. Yeah. And he's I, also in Watchmen. You haven't uh, seen Watchmen yet, have I you? Have, yeah. Oh, you have, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Ice Cube's son plays Ray. Is that right? Oh, yeah. That's Looks cool. just like Ice Cube. And he played Ice Cube in the NWA movie. Oh, how about that? Yeah. I didn't know all that. I thought he did a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, very few people, I think, knew who Ray was last time we talked to him. And no. his book hadn't come out. And he it hadn't been Oprah's book of the month. And he had not done all of these tours and speaking engagements and all that. And, and so, he hadn't been on No Brother yet. That was the biggest thing. That was the big deal. The big thing. And people were like, wait. Like, 12 people were like, I heard him on No Brother. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. When Oprah asked him questions, I'd be like, Oprah, I already asked yeah. him that. Yeah. Stealing our questions. Yeah, that's what she does. Old Oprah. Old Oprah. Yeah. Um, so let's do this. Let's take our first quick break. It okay. may be the only break we take time. I'm not. Might be. We'll see. It'll be like, like an impeachment trial. We'll take no breaks <laughs> for a long time. If he needs like some water or coffee or something. Yeah, we'll, that's fine. Whatever. We'll take a break at that point. Yeah. But until then, not so much. All right. Uh, let's hear from, oh, Delicate Cutters. How good is this? Where the cotton mouths hung. Oh, yeah. They're great. One of my favorites. So this hour of Over the Radio is brought to you by Good People Brewing Company. Good People Brewing, the most aptly named business in Birmingham. Welcome back to Brother Radio and we'll lock me. That is Reed Locking Me over there. It's Birmingham Mountain Radio, 107.3 FM in town, 92.3 Pelham, and BMountainRadio.com all over the place. If you got friends that are not listening, tell them, uh, hey, tune in right now because uh, this is going to be one of the you know more important interviews. I said this was the last time Ray was here, but I think it's going to be the exact same way. One of the more important interviews we've ever done. So let's welcome to the show Dr. Stephen Allstad, first of all, who you hear every two weeks here on the show, head of the bio department at UAB. And a great friend of ours, and Anthony Ray Hinton as well. How you been? I've been great. Thanks for having me back again. Of course, yeah. We, we kind of caught up the listeners in the last break, uh, what we did last time you were here, and, and so much has changed. Oh, yes. Since in the last two years. So tell us about it. What, what is life like now for Ray? Oh, life is uh, trying to go around the country and educate people about uh, the death penalty. Uh, as you know, uh, Brian Stevenson movies out, uh, True Justice, and I'm having to explain to people about uh, the film and what we was trying to capture in the movie and tell people about uh, justice in America and justice in Alabama. And uh, I think if you're open to uh, truth, uh, whether you're a hard-nosed person that say, hey, lock them up, throw away the key, I think this movie will make you uh, think twice about that. Yeah, there's no question. And you're friends with Oprah, so that's kind of a, <laughs> that's a yeah, pretty big deal as well. Um, I mean, but honestly, last when we talked to you, it was one of the first kind of talks you'd had in, with the media. And then sh- so shortly after that, then it really just got rolling and, and you're just all over the place. And you, you do such a great job when you have these interviews and, and speak to people like Oprah and, and, and at speaking engagements. I have people reach out to me all the time and talk about it. Well, you know, uh, uh Talking about it, uh, one thing I often tell people, I have truths on my side. And 
when you have the truth, you can speak the truth, and you don't have to think about it. And I just try my best to uh, go out and educate people, as I said earlier. Uh, I try to have a little fun with it. Uh, I try to show people that although I know that I was uh, done wrong, I try my best to show people that about forgiveness. I try to educate people even with that, uh, let people know forgiveness is not about the person that did you wrong. Forgiveness is about yourself. And I'm just trying to enjoy the rest of my life. I don't know how much longer I have on this earth, but I hope, I pray that God will restore those 30 years that I lost and give them back to me. You're looking, you're looking good. Hey, well, thank you so much. That'd only be fair. Ray, I've got a question for you. Uh, we read in uh, Just Mercy about the way that once Walter McMillan, you know, was exonerated and uh, found himself, you know, sort of making the rounds and, and telling his story, you know, that was in some ways overwhelming for him. And, of course, he had just been removed from society for six years. What in the world is it like to be, you know, displaced from society for 30 years and now all of a sudden be inundated and interacting with so many people? What's that experience been like for you? It's frightening, uh, to be honest with you. You know, you uh, when you're on death row, you live in a one-man cell. You're in yeah. a five by seven. Uh, you're in a close environment. So, you know, uh, I know when I came home, I tried my best to sleep in this nice, big, soft bed. Yeah. And I woke up around 2 in the morning finding myself breathing hard. And it wasn't until I went in the bathroom and my heart rate started going down. Mm. And I realized at that moment, this is where I'm going to sleep for the night, at least I thought. Yeah. And my body, my mind, whatever, was not just prepared and used to being out in the open space. And I ended up sleeping in that uh, bathroom for at least three or four days. And hopefully I would try every night to go back in bed and try to sleep. And I just wouldn't get used to it. And so you're used to being in this close environment. You're not used to being around people. I never will forget I went to the mall over in uh, uh, River Chase Mall. And I wasn't in there a good five minutes. I had to run out of there because... I wasn't used to this crowd being around you, people bumping into you. Uh, when you were on death row, I often said, and I hope I can say this way, I, it, it, death row is, uh, is hell. Yeah. Uh, you got streaming all day. You got the mental ill there uh, reliving whether they was in the Army, uh, talking to themselves, and you got to hear this, and you can't escape. Uh, I can truthfully say that I found a way to escape, but uh, this is a place where you sleep when you can get it. You can't say, hey, I'm trying to sleep over here. Well, man, when you was up talking, I was trying to sleep then. I didn't say nothing to you. So it's a constant noise, 24-7. It's hot. Uh, oh, it's hot in the summertime beyond anything you can imagine. And it's freezing cold in the winter. You know, uh, Alabama prison, and I think Holman prison is the oldest prison in Alabama. Mm. And so the pipe system don't even work anymore. The heat don't even work anymore. I can't tell you how many cold shower. We had to take even in the wintertime. You take it or you uh, don't take it. And you don't give them any opportunities oh, no. to shower. No. Every other day, that's when it was. Uh, if you shower Monday, you didn't shower again to Wednesday. If you shower Wednesday, you didn't shower again to Friday. And so uh, we tried not to pass them up because uh, you're in this cell by yourself. And the worst thing you want to do is start smelling yourself. And yeah. uh, So you try your best to take this shower regardless of whether the Water was warm or ice cold, and most time in the winter it's ice cold because, 
let's face it, Alabama prison, or whether people believe or not, is in uh, the worst prison. And, you know, that's big news, of course, now. You know, even the Fed's looking at, at Alabama and saying you've got to do something about this. Yeah. Well, yeah. good luck with that. Uh, right, right. Uh, Reed and Dr. Ostad and myself, we know your story through and through, but a lot of listeners tonight may not. So explain how you escaped from that cell, even while being in the cell. Uh, for... When I, once I was convicted of uh, capital murder and sentenced to death uh, for three years when I first got to uh, Holman Correctional Facilities, I refused to talk to anybody. For three years, I went without talking. And even when my mom and my best friend, who is here today, uh, I wouldn't say anything. I would just say, oh, okay. Uh, but I stayed. I was so angry. And I often tell people I wasn't angry at nobody as much as I was with God. And I felt God had failed me. And I, my mom brought me up from the age of four, believing in God and saying that God can do everything but fail. And I wanted to know where was God at when I was being lied on, when I was being prosecuted for a crime that he knew and I knew that I didn't commit. And so after three years, uh, I woke up one morning about 1 o'clock in the morning to the sound of a grown man crying. And my mom had taught me compassion, and she said, no matter what one does in life, he or she still deserves compassion. And I want you to always give a person compassion when they need it. And so this is a man that I had lived by for three years and never asked him his name, where he was from, didn't conversate with nobody. But that compassion came out of me when I heard this man crying and I asked him, sir, is something wrong? Do you need me to get a correction officer back here? Took him a while to reply, but... Later he came and he said, no, I just got worried my mother died. And I told him how sorry I was to hear that. And I told him if I could do anything for him, just let me know. And I sit on that bunk bed that was really too small for me because I'm a tall guy and a big guy and my feet hung over the, the rail. And so I always slept in a fetal position for 30 years. And as I sit on this bunk bed, I decided at that moment, that I was going to live my life, live the best that I could right there in a death row. And that's why I titled my book, How I Found Freedom uh, on Death Row. And what I did was I knew I couldn't escape physically, so I decided I would escape mentally. And I told my body, just as I'm talking here, I said, body, I have to leave. In order for me to survive this hell that I'm in, I have to leave. And it was like my body was talking back to me, and my body said, do you promise to come back? And I said, yeah, I'll come back. I said, I got to come back. I got to come back and check on his case. It was as though my body gave me permission to leave, and once my body gave me permission, I left. And of all the places in the world to go, I went to England. I wanted to see the Queen. And I imagined going to England, and I imagined showing up at the palace. Uh, I told the guards I was there to see Queen Elizabeth. Just go in and tell her that I was there. In my mind, they went in and told the queen I was there, and uh, the queen had me brought in, and I introduced myself to the queen. We sit down, we talked about Prince Charles, Prince Harris, uh, Prince William, and of course the tragedy of Prince Di. And about 35 to 40 minutes into talking, the queen realized that she hadn't offered me anything to drink, and finally she stood up and she said, Mr. Hinton, would you like some tea? And I told her I would love some tea. And she said, what would you like in your tea? And I told her a spot of lemon. 
and she had the butler to go out and get this lemon, and they bring this lemon in. I squeeze it in my tea, and we talk some more, and about 35 to 40 minutes later, I stand up and I tell the queen I must be leaving. And she looked at me and she said, Mr. Hinton, will you come back? And I told her I would love to come back. And at that moment, I knew that I could leave death row anytime I wanted to. And I left, and then I did something that I said at the age of 12 I would never do, and that was to get married. And I decided I would get married, and I didn't just marry anybody, but I married the beautiful and talented actress Halle Berry. And Halle Berry and I stayed married for 15 long, beautiful years up in my mind. Halle was just the perfect wife. If there's a such thing, she wouldn't say nothing but yes, dear, okay, dear, whatever you want to do, dear, is okay with me. And But I didn't love Halle for those things. I love Halle because she didn't spend any money. And what man don't love a woman that never spend money? And Helen and I, as I said, stayed married for 15 years. And one day the warden did something that it had never done for death row inmate. Showed us a movie, and the movie was called Speed. And, man, when I tell you I looked at Sonia Bullock for the first time, she was driving this bus around and around, and I looked at Helen. and I looked back at Sonia Bullock. But to be honest with you, I was trying to build my nerves up to give her. Had some sad news. And, <laughs> and finally, when I built my nerves up, I looked at Halle and I said, I'm going to divorce you and marry Sandra Bullock. And true to her form, she just said, okay, dear. And by that time, a guard called me and said, Anthony, I've been calling you for 15 minutes. And I said, I'm sorry, but I was gone. And that's how I escaped. And uh, he said, you got a legal visit. And I said, well, I don't have an attorney. Alabama do not provide you with a attorney at post-conviction. And he said, well, Anthony, somebody's out there pretending to be a lawyer then. Get dressed and go see who it is. I go outside, and there's this lawyer from Boston. And I asked this lawyer, who sent you where from Boston to Alabama to represent me? And he said, Brian Stevenson. And I said, who is Brian Stevenson? And he tell me who Brian Stevenson is, how great Brian Stevenson is, he tells me that Brian Stevenson uh, lived in Montgomery. He got a place called EJI, and they uh, monitor and take on death penalty case. And he built Brian Stevenson up like he was the best lawyer in the world. And I finally looked at him again. I said, did you say you're from Boston? And he said, yes. I said, well, Brian Stevenson can't be that good. I said, because Brian Stevenson have already made one fundamental mistake. And he said, well, what is the mistake? I said, let me make sure. You did say you're from Boston. And he said, yes. I said, well, had this great Mr. Brian Stevenson check with me before he sent you here, he would have found out that I am a beloved Yankees fan. <laughs> and there's no way a Yankee fan and a Boston fan could ever do anything together. I said, but for your sake, I'm willing to put my personal feeling aside and let you work on my case. For the next three years, this man from Boston came back to Alabama every year, told me what he was trying to do, what he had found out. And it wasn't until the fourth year he came back and he said, Anthony, I can get you a life without parole. And I said, get who a life without parole? And he said, you. I said, life without parole is for guilty people, not innocent people. 
I said, I would prefer to die than to stand up and say I did something when I didn't do it. I said, the state of Alabama know that I'm innocent, but if the state of Alabama is hell-bent on executing me for a crime I didn't commit, I said, so be it. There's nothing I can do about that. I said, all of us have to die at some point in some time. I'm not ready to die, and I don't want to die for something that I didn't do. I said, but I could never stand up and admit to something that I didn't do. And I looked at the lawyer, and I said, let me tell you something that my mother told me at the age of 12. I said, she looked at me, and she said, if you man enough to bend down and pick up a rock, and if you man enough to throw that rock, then you should be man enough to say you throw that rock. I said, this is one rock I did not throw. Therefore, I could never stand up and say I did something when I didn't. And I looked at the lawyer and I said, I need a lawyer that believes in me. I need a lawyer that is willing to go to jail for me if necessary. The fact that you're trying to get me a life without parole tells me that you don't believe in me. And I said, therefore, I'm going to have to fire you. He said, are you serious? I said, yes. I said, but I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for what you were trying to do. I said, but I just need a lawyer that believes in me. And as he went out the front door, I was going back toward the cell, and something in my mind said, you got to be the dumbest person in the world. You fired the only lawyer that you had, and just as that thought into my mind, another thought came and said, you did the right thing. Always stand up for what you believe in. And as I got toward my cell, the guard was watching TV, and I asked him, uh, what was he watching? He told me he was watching his lawyer out of Montgomery named Brian Stevenson. I asked him, could I stand there and watch? He said, yes. Brian Stevenson was talking about why we don't need a death penalty in this country. And as I listened at him, I knew this is the man that I need to represent me. And I goes in the cell and I write Brian Stevenson a letter. And I tell Brian Stevenson, thank you for the lawyer from Boston, but it just didn't work out. And I asked him, I said, I want to ask you to take my case. I said, I know you hear from men in prison all the time saying they're innocent. I said, but I am truly innocent. I said, I would like for you to consider becoming my lawyer. But before you say yes or no, all I ask is that you read my transcript. And if you find one thing in my transcript that point to my guilt, do not become my lawyer. Do not send me another lawyer. I am perfectly willing to die for something that I didn't do. About three months later, I get a letter from Brian Stevenson telling me he would read my transcript. About five months later, I get a letter saying that he would be coming to see me. And I have to be honest with you, the moment I shook this man's hand, I knew that God had sent me his best lawyer. A burden that was on me just left me the moment I shook this hand. We sit down, we talked about our childhood, he being from Delaware, and I'm from the South here in Alabama. We exchanged story about upbringing. And finally, we got to the heart of the case, and I said, Mr. Stevenson, if no two guns is alike, I said, I already know that the state of Alabama is telling a lie. I said, the gun that I told them that my mother had, that gun hadn't been fired in over 25 years. I know that for a fact. 
I said, my mom keeps going around the house for snakes. That's it. I said, but I need you to do me a favor. And I said, I need you to hire a ballistic expert. And Mr. Stevenson looked at me and he said, well, I was going to do that anyway. And I looked at Mr. Stevenson and I said, Mr. Stevenson, I'm not explaining myself right. I said, I need you to hire a white man. And I need this white man to be from the South. I said, but I need this white man to be the best of the best. I need this white man to believe in the death penalty. But above all of that, I need this white man to just tell the truth. And Mr. Stevenson asked me, why do he have to be white? Why do he have to be a male? And I said, Mr. Stevenson, I lived in the South all of my life. You can go out and get the best white female in the country. I said, her word just not any good on the witness stand in, in the South. And I said, it definitely cannot be a person of color. I said, if nothing else, the South recognized one of their own. I said, it got to be a Southern white man. He left that day and I got a call about three months later. He informed me that he had talked to three of the world-renowned experts. Uh, two of them live in Texas, one of them live in Virginia. And he informed me that these three men was the best in the country. And he said, Ray, I need to tell you something. These three men have never testified for the defense. They only testified for the prosecution. He said, in other words, what I'm trying to tell you, these men put men's on death row. They have never testified to get one off. Are you sure these are the three men you want me to hire? And I replied, Mr. Stevenson, did you remember to ask them the truth? Would they tell the truth? And he said, each one of them said they would tell exactly what the evidence shows. And I said, if you can afford to hire these three men, hire them. And they came to Alabama on separate occasions, one at a time. One did they finding. Next time another one came, he did they finding. At the end, when the last one done, they informed Mr. Stephen that the state of Alabama had made a grave mistake. They was quoted as saying that the bullets do not even come close to matching. I learned during rehearing that they even tried to manipulate the gun to make the bullets match, and the gun still wouldn't match. We take this new evidence to Attorney General, a man by the name of Bill Pryor, tell him to re-examine the bullets. Bill Pryor was quoted as saying, it would be a waste of the taxpayer money. And more important, it would be a waste of his time. And although it would only take one hour, as far as he was concerned, the right man was on death row. And for not doing his job, George W. Bush appointed him to a federal lifetime appointment. The next man we go to is a man by the name of Troy King. He too refused to take one hour to re-examine the bullets. He lose in the next election to 
Uh, Luther Strain, he become the Attorney General. We go before him. He wouldn't re-examine the bullets. And for him not doing his job, he took Jeff Section's seat as the Alabama Senators. Sixteen years went by. All it would took was one hour. And I asked myself, even to this day, did they not examine the gun because they already knew that the gun never did match? Or was race more important? Did they not examine because I was a black man? I would truly love to believe that they didn't retest the gun, not because I was black. I don't want to believe that. But I have searched my soul. I have thought every way that I could. And the only answer I can come up with, they didn't retest the gun because they already knew the truth and because I was black. And they never figure on me getting an attorney like Brian Stevenson to have someone of those three men qualification to re-examine the gun. Ray, let me ask you a question. Um, when I read your book, when I hear you tell your story, when I read Just Mercy, um, one of the things that's most striking is, you know, the disappointment um, that I'm just in the last 10 years coming to realize about, you know, people who are in positions of authority and power who fail to do their due diligence and, and to really seek the truth. And what you just said there a moment ago reminded me of a student I, or a conversation I had with a student of mine several years ago. And we were talking about, you know, racial discord and, and these kinds of things. And this is a black student of mine. And I asked him, I said, what, what do you think, what do you think it's going to take? What are we, what are we going to have to do to make meaningful progress in these areas? And he said, I think it's going to take black people being in charge before these things are fixed. And I said, I was kind of struck by that at the time. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, don't you think maybe, you know, just, just ethical people being in charge? And he said, no, I don't think so. And I walked away from that conversation and thought a lot about it. Um, and I've come more and more to the conclusion that he makes a really valid point, I think, sometimes because of the ways that sometimes even well-intended white people, I think, are just not able to see uh, the kinds of issues. What, what do you make of my student's comment? What, what do you uh, think about that? Uh, he was dead on the money. And you have to go back, and I would like to try to take your audience back to, to slavery. Yeah. African Americans have given white America for slavery. Uh, and I think African America would serve better because we know what it feels like to be mistreated. We know what it feels like to be in injustice. And I think African American would give uh, the best decision. You know, I once heard a prosecutor try to strike all blacks off jury. Mm. Black people send black men and black women to prison every day in this country. So we don't let race interfere in our decision. If you prove you're innocent, I believe a judge would say, uh, this man is innocent. I believe if we had a black uh, prosecutor uh, that would do his homework, find out whether the evidence match up, free to go. If not, no, we, I got the proof to prove it. White, I think America have been polarized by watching TV too much. 
law and order in all of these places. I can't tell you the conversation that I've had with white Americans when they tell me, well, nobody goes to prison that didn't do it when I own law and order. I want to say this is a TV show. This is actress. It's a bad TV it's, show at that. Because, okay. yeah. <laughs> I don't watch it. It's but, terrible. Good, 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 for but, you. good for you. I don't watch it, but I just think it's time we tried something different. And I just believe if we only could try. Now, you're going to have some people that will disagree with this statement. I think Barack Obama tried to do to be the best president that he could. I think he tried more harder than because of his uh, skin tone. Uh, but when he didn't have the support that he needed to try and do the things that he would truly love to do. I mean, I asked myself, what's wrong with providing health care with everybody? What's wrong with trying to help those that uh, need a little help? Uh, what's wrong with helping a man get up and uh, get on his feet? But long as you have people that are more concerned about race, more concerned about the people that put them in office, uh, we're going to continue to have this injustice in this country. And, and seem, oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean, no, it just seems like it makes sense to have our governing bodies look like our country. Yeah. Just to have it be representative of mm -hmm. what our country actually looks like. Uh, and we're not there. We're talking, by the way, to Anthony Ray Hinton, the author of The Sun Does Shine, of course, and featured in Just Mercy, the movie and the book, who spent 30 years on death row for a crime he did not commit. Well, you know, I, I find it interesting uh, you say that because in this state, there's no person of color on the Alabama Criminal Court appeal, and there's no person of color on the Alabama Supreme Court. I don't care how many judges you have in the county, in the city, at the end of the day, every case goes before the Alabama Criminal Court appeal and the Alabama Supreme Court. And you will not get justice when you go to those court. I am a witness of it. I stayed in Alabama system for 28 years. They knew that my case had marriage. They knew that this case deserved a new trial, but they didn't have the backbone to say, I'm voting that this man be given a new trial. And they didn't do it because in the state, we elect our judges, and it is political suicide. When you rule in favor of a death row inmate, you can, as we say, you can kiss the baby. I mean, how do we get to a point where getting it right is more important than winning? I, I, because clearly getting it right is not the objective. I, th I think we get it right when white America say, hey, we sent you there to do the right thing. We sent you there to make fair decisions. We didn't send you there just to keep Mr. Hinton locked up because you can I don't want to pay for Mr. Hinton being on death row for 30 years for a crime you know he didn't do. And when we find out that our judges is not, but what bothers me more than anything, I often think about the U.S. Senate. For the last, what, 10 years, 12, 15 years, their approval rating been 6%. But yet we put the same people back in office year after year after year. And so we have become, I guess, immune to the system not working. And so it's going to take the people that believe 
in a fair system to rise up and say, hey, no more. Well, and Dr. Stephen Ostad joins us as well. And um, this conversation reminds me, today I went back and looked back through one of the articles you had written about, you know, our jury system and wondering, is this as a, you know, is it a, as effective as we would like to think it uh, would be? And is it the best thing to do? And certainly there are pros and cons to that system. I think also, uh, you know, some people say, hey, not every country has an adversarial kind of justice system. Sometimes uh, people structure their justice system more around uh, bringing experts together who all work very hard to find the truth, not to win their case. Do you have thoughts on on where we are with this and what we ought to do? I sure do, because I've you know, what got me interested in, in Ray's case was that I assumed that it was just bad investigation. It was just a bad mistake. But I didn't have to look into it very far to realize <clears throat> this wasn't really a mistake. Almost everybody involved in his prosecution had to realize they had the wrong guy. But they proceeded anyway. And I think in addition to one of the things that Ray mentioned, which is uh, not uh, getting elected judges, but picking judges mm. because of their expertise in the law, that for prosecutorial misconduct, there should be serious penalties. If you send somebody that you know is innocent to death row, and it later comes out, you need to pay a, a real penalty for that. That that can't be allowed to stand. I'd like to know what Ray thinks about that. Well, you know, uh, I, I agree with you, but what probably your average listener don't know is that the United States Supreme Court have given every prosecutor in the United States a blank check. They cannot be sued for misconduct. Uh, they can't be sued for putting someone on the witness stand that they know is lying. Uh, but if you get up there and lie for the defense, that same prosecutor will prosecute you for perjury. We have a double standard in this country, and that's why uh, African-Americans especially don't believe that justice is fair. We don't believe it would never be fair. And I often say that it would never be fair because, let's be honest, we, somebody's making a lot of money off sending people to prison, and therefore they don't want it fair because you lose these people that you would normally send to prison you know, I was convicted as, as well because I couldn't afford to hire decent defense. And we just have a system that if you can't afford an attorney, you get whatever the, the system gives you. And that's nothing. There's an old saying in America, you get what you pay for. I didn't pay for an attorney, and I didn't get an attorney. I just got a man that did enough to make it legal. And I spent 30 years of my life. There. And your attorney was paid, if I remember correctly, just $1,000 yes. to defend you. Exactly. And unfortunately, uh, was only willing to work as hard as he felt yeah. that was worth. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, the words still echo in my mind when the judge uh, told him that he wanted to represent me on two counts of first-degree capital murder. And he informed me, he said, I only get $1,000. I eat $1,000 for breakfast. Mm. And I knew that this man already was informing me, I'm not going to work for you and try to save your life for $1,000. I'm going to do what I can. And he was also, you were given an attorney who was stupid enough to go to a restaurant that <laughs> charges $1,000 for breakfast. <laughs> like yeah. I was an idiot from Absolutely. the get-go. Yeah. You know, but uh, you get what you pay for. Yeah, Mr. Hinton, tell me how you know Dr. Allstead. How'd you meet this guy? Uh, he reached out to me and was trying to uh, 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 help me get compensation uh, 
uh, he wrote an article in the, uh, the Birmingham News, I believe it was, and and uh, I was impressed with somebody was fighting for me, somebody that I didn't know. And, 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 and I've learned in life, sometimes it's a total stranger that you don't have no idea who he is or who she is that believe in justice. And he felt that I had been served injustice and he wanted to do whatever he could for it. And one day I received, uh, I think, an email at EJI, and I called him, and uh, we met. And I would love to believe that we have become friends, and we don't talk as regular as uh, we should. Uh, but it it gives me hope that somebody is saying, hey, you was done wrong. And we as taxpayers in Alabama, I'm going to do everything I can to try to make you whole as much as I can. And so that's how we met. So, so let me just say that this has been one of the big privileges of my life to, to know Ray. Mm-hmm. And I would like to just go on a different tangent because I think that listeners ought to know what an incredible person mm-hmm. is talking to them. It's, it's not just somebody that was convicted wrongly of a crime that he never committed. Tell us about the book club. That you formed on death row. Oh, right. That's really quite the story. Well, uh, you know, you there with men of all ages and all races. And before I even begin, I, I just want to say that death row is the only place that I ever been that there was no racism. And I can't tell you how many days, how many nights I sit in my living room and realize that you don't have to have racism. It's nothing that you, let me say, inherit. None of us is born racist. We are taught to be racist. And so uh, as I was there and I noticed men's vocabulary, they, the way they walked, the way they talked, and I, one day I asked uh, a group of men, what grade did you uh, finish in high school? Did you finish high school? And out of 200 men, only five of us had finished high school. And I kept asking, well, what grade did you stop in? I'm thinking they're going to say the 11th or the 12th. And uh, if you're going to stop, you know, that's pretty common. But every one of these men said the 7th and 8th grade. And I said, how you stop in the 7th and 8th grade? Oh, did your mom know you wasn't going to school? And most of them would say, man, my mom was too busy getting high. No. I don't know my father, but for all I know, you could be my father. I said, well, what about the teacher? I was one less child she had to worry about that day. So nobody cared. And young people, those men felt that didn't nobody care. And I wrote to the warden, and I said, warden, uh, I would love to come and talk to you about starting the book club. And so he he, um, honored my request, called me in his office, and asked me, what this about a book club? I said, well, I belongs to one when I was in the free world, and books opened up your mind. I said, to keep these men from tearing the bed off the wall and tearing the toilets up and uh, being this construction, give them something to read. And he said, what are you trying to, what are you trying to do? What you all up to back there? And I said, what? You know me, I, I have been nothing but rules since I've been here. I said, I just feel that if you gave him a book to read, I think it would stop a lot of problems. So he said, let me think about it. He thought about it. About a month later, he called me back in his office. He said, who's going to pay for these books? And I said, i get my friend Lester to send, send the books. 
he approved it, but I wanted 14 men, but he wanted to allow six. And one of the men in special I wanted to be in the book club was uh, a man by the name of Henry Hayes, who was a Ku Klux Klansman. And I started my book club. The first book that I wanted everybody to read was James Baldwin, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And I explained to these men that there was no wrong answer, there was no right answer. When you read a book, everybody gets something totally different from the author. So with that being said, the books came in, we read the books, we went into the law library. Uh, the book club got so successful that the warden had to cut it out. Uh, all 200 men wanted to be in this book club. And what I learned and realized at that moment, that these men, when they were children, was not given the opportunity to do learning, to be able to read books. And I sold them with the idea that if you read a book about California, you don't have to go to California. You can just imagine what California looked like. And and so this idea caught on to these 200 men. Everybody wanted to read a book. Everybody didn't care what kind of book it was. They just wanted to read. And you should have heard the discussion. Uh, I read this book. I read this book. Yeah, I read the same book. And, man, what did you think about this part? What did you think? And I realized that. It wasn't that they didn't want to read. They didn't want to know. Nobody had ever presented them with the opportunity to see something beyond what was read in front of them. And I did. Let me ask you a question, because you said something interesting there. Um, A moment ago, you said death row was a place where there was no racism. Mm -hmm. And then you said when you get ready to start this book club, one of the people specifically you want in the book club is Henry Haynes. Is that right? Hayes. Hayes. Hayes who had been a KKK member and, if people don't know, uh, was convicted of a, a, a terrible lynching, mm-hmm. uh, unbelievably, in 1981. Yes. People think lynching is a thing that happened long, long in the past, yes. in 1981. So now, to me, that sounds like, now wait a second, that sounds like that's a racist fella. And also, mm-hmm. why do you want him in the book club? And also, later I want to talk about, I can't believe they let y'all read James Baldwin. So let's talk <laughs> about all, but let's start with, why did you want Henry in in the club? And, and how can you say there was no racism there if, if Henry's there? Well, first and foremost, when uh, Henry came to death row, you're in this cell and you don't know who the person is next to you. On death row, nobody care about what your last name, really what you did. If you say, my name is Henry, that's what everybody referred to you as Henry. And so Henry was right next to me and Henry and I began to talk uh, every day and about I would say uh, a month or so uh, somebody asked me when I went to the shower do you know who you talk to every day and I said yeah Henry and they said no that's not just Henry that's Henry the Ku Klux classroom that's the man that hung that kid in Mobile and so when I went back to my cell I hollered I said Henry I said why you didn't tell me who you were and Henry didn't respond. But I had to ask myself a more important question. Did it matter? And if I was going to be true to myself, it didn't matter. My mom, as I probably said before, my mom said, no matter what one does in life, everybody deserves some compassion. And Henry was no different. And knowing who Henry was, and as uh, later on up in the years we got to talking, uh, Henry informed me that all of his life, he had been taught to be racist. His mother, his father, his community taught him uh, nothing but hate. 
And so I had to try to like deprogram Henry the first and show Henry that we know different other than skin color. And I remember the very first question I asked Henry. I said, Henry, what have I done to you? And Henry said, well, black people. I said, I didn't ask you a damn thing about black people. I asked you, what have I ever done to you? And Henry again went to say, well, black people, I said, Henry, do you know what I mean? I is single. What have I ever done to you? And Henry said, you haven't done anything to me. I don't even know you. I said, my point exactly. I said, so why do you hate black people? And he said, Ray, that's what my father brought me up to, to hate. And I knew then that I've always believed and always heard that it takes a village to raise a child. And I kept wondering, where was this village when this boy was being taught to hate? And over the course of 15 years, uh, I got to know Henry. Henry got to know me and other African-Americans on death row. Henry never did use the N-word. Henry never did say anything out of the line. You would, you would have to see how African-Americans took to Henry. Uh, we didn't judge Henry because I had been accused as well as killing uh, a white uh, restaurant manager. So if you're going to hate, hate Henry, you might as well hate me for I've been accused of killing the white man. So what was the difference? He killed the black. They said I killed the white. So we didn't look at it like that. Uh, all I knew that Henry deserved compassion. And this is the man that my mom had told me about so many years. Everybody deserved compassion. And so over the course of the years, and I talked to Henry every day, we became friends. And one day I knew we was friends when his father came to see him. And he way for me to come over to his table, which you're not supposed to get up. But I got up to see what Henry wanted. And he introduced me to his father, and he referred to me. He said, Dad, I want you to meet my friend Ray. And I reached my hand out to shake his daddy's hand, and his daddy wouldn't shake my hand. And so I went on back to my table, and my friend Lester asked me, said, what that was about? I said, progress. And so we, the visiting hour was over with. They take us back to strippers of searchers and Henry had this sad look on his face, and I said, Henry, what's wrong? And he said, nothing. I said, man, what's wrong? I said, something wrong. And he said, well, my father told me don't never bring another nigger to his table. Hmm. And I said, Henry, that's your father's cancer. If your father want to die with that cancer, nothing you can do about it. But you don't have to die with that cancer. And so we goes back to our cell. We continue to talk every day, and uh, as time go by, Henry's mother come to see him. She passed on the vision yard of a massive heart attack. A month later, his father come. He died of a massive heart attack. And now Henry is left alone. And so they set Henry an execution date. Henry requests to the warden that I be with him during the day, since he didn't have no family. And so they let us go out on the vision yard. We sit on the vision yard. And I've always believed in laughter. I believe laughter is good for the soul. And so I tried my best to make Henry laugh all day and not think about that tonight your life will come to an end. And it wasn't until about 6 o'clock they brought Henry his last meal. And when he took the lid off, it was an eight-ounce steak. And I looked at Henry and I said, man, you ready to die. And he said, why would you say that? I said, that's all you want for your last meal, an eight-ounce steak? And he said, yeah. I said, Okay. And he looked at me, and I knew what he was finna ask me before he even asked me. He said, Ray, 
if you don't mind me asking you, what would you want if it ever come your time? I said, I'm glad you said that, Henry, because I thought about this a lot. I said, what I want, they're going to have to go to the forest and get it. And when they go to the forest and bring it back, I'm going to say, that is not what I told y'all I want. I said, so every time they go to the forest and bring something back, it ain't what I want, Henry. I said, in other words, if they can't execute you until you eat your last meal, I said, I never died, Henry. I ain't never eat what they bring me because it ain't never. But I did that to try to make him even laugh at then. And uh, he ate his last meal, and about 9 or 10 o'clock, they told we had to leave. And we hugged, and I told Henry that one day I'll see him again. And uh, they shaved his head, put him on new clothes, and strapped him in the chair and dropped the mic and asked him, did he have any final words? And Henry was quoted as saying, all of my life, I was taught to hate. The very people that I was taught to hate for the last 15 years are the people that showed me nothing but love. And as I leave this world tonight, I leave this world knowing what love feel like. And they executed my friend Henry. And even to this day, I still believe in what my mom said that everybody deserves compassion. And people ask me every day, I mean every day, no matter what state I'm in, no matter around town, whatever, they say, why do you believe this happened? Why do you think it happened to you? And I truly believe that everything happened for a reason, and I would love to believe that God knew that Henry deserved somebody to love him. Brian Stevenson says that mercy is most powerful when it's directed at the undeserving and people yes, who don't don't expect it, haven't sought it, um, maybe don't deserve it, uh, but that's when it's most powerful. Yeah, you learned it from your mom. I learned it from Brian Stevenson. Okay. Just <laughs> uh, all right, so we're talking to Anthony, Anthony Ray Hinton. Uh, from, he's the author, of course, of The Sun Does Shine. You know when you're listening to a football game and they say, let's pause now for station identification. That's a thing they make us do, so we have to do that really quick. It's a six-second break, but here's the thing. Do you, if you want some water or coffee, we can take it like a four. My all right, let's do a four-minute break. How about that? So we will pause here for station identification and listen to a great song by uh, a band called The War and Treaty. It's just fantastic. So here we go. We'll be back right after this. Yeah. Welcome back to Brother Radio. I'm Will Lockamy. That is Reed Lockamy. It's Birmingham Mountain Radio, 107.3 FM here in town, 92.3 Pelham, and bmmountainradio.com. All over the place, we're hanging out with Dr. Stephen Austad, as we do every couple of weeks, but also special guest Anthony Ray Hinton is here. He is the author of The Sun Does Shine. Go purchase that book and read it. Also featured in Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson's book, and the movie that is out now. You're played by O'Shea Jackson Jr., uh, also known as Ice Cube's son, who looks a lot like you and does a pretty good job. Uh, he does a pretty good impression of you. I mean, the, the, he's a solid actor. Well, uh, I think he did an excellent job for someone that I didn't meet until the movie was uh, made. Really? Yes. And uh, uh, I looked at him, and we took pictures up in New York, and and he said, uh, it was just an honor to play you and I. Looked at the movie, and he really did a great job. So, so Ray, I, I have a question about the movie. So you, you've been through a worse experience than virtually any of us can even conceive. Mm-hmm. Was it hard for you to actually watch the movie? Did you sort of relive some of the worst moments or anything? Uh, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, I think uh, writing the book was even worse because I had to relive uh, my mom a lot and talking about my mom and 
uh, how I was brought up. And so to me, uh, writing the book was much harder than just sitting there watching the movie. Yeah. But the movie was uh, hard as well, but it was nothing compared to sitting down there putting words on a piece of paper. And did you have a book planned when you were released? Had you thought about writing a book? Well, in the book, I even mentioned that when we was uh, reading James Baldwin, Go Tell It on the Mountain, I said that I was going to roll that boulder up the hill and one day I might write a book and I'm going to tell the world uh, my story. And and so when I came home and uh, Mr. Stevenson had me to uh, tell my story to some of the visitors that would come to EJI, uh, after this speech, people would say, hey, you should write a book. Put your story in the book. And after hearing about this from different people from different states, and I went to Mr. Stevens and told him that, uh, you think it's possible that I could get a, a write a book? And he said, yeah, if that's what you want to do, I'll try to help you. And he got me in uh, touch with somebody, and I began to write down everything because I couldn't keep a journey in prison. They don't allow you to keep journals in prison, uh, nothing like that, because if they try to keep you uh, with your cell clean and uh, you can't have so many pictures. And uh, like uh, when you get a book, you got seven days to read that book or they come in there and destroy it or I tell you, you got, uh, they send it home, but you can't not keep it longer than seven days. And so uh, I never did put anything down on paper. Uh, all of my memory came back uh, when I wrote this book, and I just wrote it from memories. And, and what was the exact process of writing the book? Because having spoken with you and then listened to so many of your speeches, it's, I mean, so many of the stories are word for word mm-hmm. the exact way you say it. Did you talk to Laura Love Hardy and, and kind of, and then she jotted it down? And what was the process? The process was uh, I wrote. Uh, at home, I would write down on paper, get in the kitchen or, or out on Lester deck and just would write some time. And uh, Brian uh, bought me a little tape recorder and he said, listen, uh, if you're going down the road and uh, something come to mind, uh, put the tape recorder on and say it like that. And so I had stuff that I would wrote and stuff that I had read. Uh, luggage, as they call it, and going down the road and just put it on the tape recorder. And you can kind of tell because, I mean, there's a way we speak and then there's a way if we put our thoughts into writing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it, you can tell, like, that's the exact way he says that <laughs> out loud as opposed to, yeah. you know, transferring that into writing. So I was curious about that. I uh, mentioned to you earlier off the air that I teach 12th grade English and my students and I right now are studying uh, Just Mercy and we're excited about going to see the film next week. Um, I'm, I'm excited for them to be able to see it. I asked my students today, I said, hey, I'm going to have an opportunity to speak with Mr. Hinton, and what kinds of questions would you have for him? And one of my students uh, asked the question, what, what was the most difficult or painful thing that you went through when you were on death row? And I'm also curious to know, as we get ready to see the film, whether or not you feel like it's an accurate representation of that experience. Oh, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, the most difficult thing that I had to go through while on death row is the loss of my mother. Yeah. Uh, my mother and I had a a bond. Uh, my mom was my father as well as my mother. Uh, I think I told you last time I was here, my father lost his mind when I was four years old. Yeah. And so my mother had to be my uh, father as well as my mother. 
But I feared my mother more than I would any man. Uh, my mom ruled with an iron fist, but in ruling with an iron fist, she knew exactly how to love. And so uh, growing up as a man without a father, but my mom was always there for me. She was my biggest cheerleader. Whenever I played sports, she was somehow got a transportation. We didn't have a car, but when I knew anything, she was there at my sporting event, cheered me on. and. Uh, I could go home at any time of the night when I even when I got as we call it grown, mm-hmm. and I could ask my mom to get up and fix me something. And she would do it. She kind of spoiled me a little bit, and I could tell my mother anything. And, and uh, I just had this bond, and I had a love for my mom that out of so much respect for her, and she brought me up to respect others regardless. And my mom used to just sit and talk to me and tell me little things like. There are going to be people that dislike you simply because of the color of your skin. Those are the people that I want you to love more and pray for. And I would say, Mom, I can't do that. And she said, not only can you do it, you're going to do it. And I better not never hear you say that again. And my mom would also tell me, she said, listen, you are not responsible for how people treat you, but you are responsible for how you treat others. And so I think the way that she molded me and brought me up when I got to prison, uh, I was used to rules. She had rules in her house, and she always say, uh, when you get to the point that you don't like my rule, that it do, you can leave. But as long as you're in my house, you're going to follow my rules. And so when I went to prison, coming up on the rules, it was easy for me to follow uh, the administration rules. I didn't break the rules. And, and so... Uh, nothing hurted me more uh, when I got the news that my mom had passed. Uh, to be honest with you, and be honest with you, listener, that was the first time I ever thought about it and wanted to give up. Uh, I never will forget, I told Mr. Stevenson, I don't care if the state of Alabama execute me now. Uh, I didn't see myself in the world without my mom. I know my mom fought for me. I knew my mom loved me. Unconditional. I knew that she just loved me no matter what. And the thing that I love about my mom, she could look at me and tell me when I'm lying, and she knew when I was telling the truth. And my mom never did ask me, did I do this? She just looked at me, and she said, you didn't do this. And I said, no, ma'am, I didn't. And she said, as long as she was living, she would do everything she could to try to get me out. And every time I would call her, she just had one question, when are they going to let you go? And I don't know, even in the book I speak, I say, I don't know, was I protecting her or was she protecting me? I don't know, was she playing as though she didn't know what was going on? I knew I was trying to protect my mom. How do you tell a mother that at some point they're going to kill you, your baby? And so I didn't want her to know anything about that part of the justice system, I would tell Lester, if it ever came that time, this is what I want you to do. Uh, I want you to take her and uh, take her to a hotel and don't tell her till the next morning. And always put the words back in that she told us. All of us have an expiration date. Uh, we only pointed a time to live and a time to die, and it was my time to die. And so I always tried to 
think of my mother even when I was uh, going through hell. I just wanted my mom not to uh, go through any bad experience just because uh, the state of Alabama had accused her son of doing something horrible. I thought about what she must be going through when people look at her and say, oh, her son killed someone. And But my mom would be the first one to say, hey, don't you ever say that to me. My baby didn't kill anybody. And so uh, I thought more about her, and that was the hardest thing uh, while I was there. Uh, the movie itself, 100% true. Uh, nothing been added that I saw. Nothing had been fabricated. Everything you've seen is the way it was and the way it is. Uh, the beating on the balls is what uh, inmates mm-hmm. do, as I said in my book. Uh, and I tell people, if you're not beating on the balls, then you must be a part of the system like the guards. And uh, What I am so proud of about the movie is the fact that Brian captured two people that didn't deserve to be on death row. Herbert Richardson mm. was a war uh, veteran, went in at 18. His whole platoon was killed. How do you survive being the only man in your platoon that survived? And Herbert came back messed up in the head. And instead of the government rewarding him with mental treatment, they kicked him out, gave him an honorable discharge, and said, you're on your own to defend yourself. And, and if ever I lived by anyone that needed mentally uh, help, it was Herbert. Every day in that film, you see uh, Jamie Foxx, who was playing Walter McMillan. We had to counsel Herbert every day, some days, all day. And Herbert knew at some point it was getting close to him to get a execution date. When I tell you those month, that month was 24-7, babysitting a grown man that knew that at a certain date they was going to scrap him in there and execute him. And how do you try to convince a person other than what Jamie said? You got Brian now. Uh, Herbert, they fighting for you. You got to believe. I mean, how much can you say in 30 days to try to get a man to calm down and Realizing Herbert, what I loved about Herbert, Herbert did not deny that he did it. He said, I did that. I didn't mean to kill that little girl. And in his mind, Herbert was trying to be a hero. He built something that to this day, I don't know how he had expected to rush and save himself and the lady as she went to the mailbox. Only in his mind, he had figured it out, I guess. But what I love, even to the end, he didn't deny what he did, and it was wrong, but he didn't mean to kill the person. But I feel that Herbert was denied three times. Herbert was denied when he came back to war to uh, mental health. His lawyer let him down when he didn't present the stage Herbert was in during trial. And if you watch the movie very closely, when Bryant got the movie, everything had been timely barred. That is something that I think we as Americans, we should demand that if you're on death row, nothing should be timely barred. Uh, the judge couldn't hear it because the lawyer didn't do his job. And Bryant 
got it and it was too late for him to bring it up. And I feel that we let Herbert down when we executed him. We as a society should not be in the uh, business first of killing any human being, but we definitely shouldn't be in the business of killing mentally retarded people. That falls on a cruel and unusual punishment. And Walter McMillan was the same. I thought we had at least grown a little bit better where you can date and fall in love with whoever you want to. Uh, Monroeville was a small town uh, right here in Alabama, and Walter was dating a white woman, and that was a no-no, and a murder took place, and they blamed on him. And I, Walter McMillan is the only man that I ever heard of in this country that was tried and convicted and sentenced to death and came to death row the day of. And Walter never did get over that. Uh, he got out uh, six or seven years later. Walter never did feel free. And to be honest with you, I don't feel free. Uh, every night I live by myself and I expect the police to kick the door in and said, you don't done something. So once you go to a, a place like jail for something you didn't do, you know, I asked the question, they did it once. What's going to stop them from doing it again? And the only satisfaction I give myself is the fact that if they ever kick my door in, I have a real 911 number, and that's Brian Stevenson. <laughs> and I will not hesitate to use That's it. a good guy to know. Absolutely. Turns out, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, Ray, you've, I mean, you've really made the best of things. You've dedicated your life since you got out to educating people about yes. the system. But in all the talks that you do and everything, you must run into some people who just say, well, I just believe in the death penalty, and there's there's nothing you can say. What do you say to people that say that to you? I do. I run into people who come up to me and say, Mr. Hinton, I, I first let me say uh, that I'm glad you didn't get executed for a crime you didn't commit, but don't you think that's a price we pray for justice? And I've always believed that you have a constitutional right to believe what you want. You have a God-given right to believe what you want. And I say to people that tell me that, I say, well, would you say that had I been your brother, had I been your father, had I been your uncle or your grandfather, would I? Would you feel that way had I been someone that was important to you? And to be honest with you, when I posed that question to them, everybody have said, you know, I hadn't thought about it like that. And I often tell people, as long as it's not on your doorstep, you really don't care, but the moment it hits your house or someone you know or someone you love, you want the world now to come to their aid. And I just feel that I have a belief that what affect me today could very well affect you tomorrow. And so don't never think that it couldn't happen to you. I didn't ever think it would happen to me, but it did. It opened my eyes up, and I feel that I have a responsibility to educate the people and let them know that the justice system is not what you think it is. Uh, I don't believe, and I will never say that we are dealing with mass incarceration. I truly believe we're dealing with a new form of slavery. And so, like slavery back in people making money off it, and that's what we are doing today. Uh, Mr. Hen, so one of my best friends, uh, Nick, I haven't talked to him in almost two weeks or seen him, and I'm, I'm ready to disown him. Now, <laughs> you, for almost 28 years, or over 28 yeah. years, uh, you were locked away hours away from your best friend, 
uh, Lester Bailey. Mm-hmm. Tell me about him because not only did he stick with you through that whole time, but he, everywhere you go, he's he's right next to you and he's here tonight. <laughs> yeah. uh, so tell us about that relationship. Uh, Lester and I have been friends ever since uh, we was four and six. I was six and he was four. Uh, I tried to ditch him when I was six and I can't <laughs> ditch him now. It's six to three. Uh, and, uh, but uh, Lester is one of those guys that uh, we was brought up like brothers. Uh, Lester would give you the shirt off his back. Uh, he's soft-spoken. Uh, Lester never did ask me, did I do it, because Lester know me. And I think when you know somebody like Lester and I know each other, uh, we can read each other pretty good. Uh, Lester know when I'm not feeling good. I know when he's not feeling good. And it didn't surprise me that uh, Lester came 10,999 times at all. Uh, it didn't surprise me that Lester worked from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. and would drive over 287 miles uh, one way. Uh, but, you know, everybody give Lester this credit for being a good friend. To be honest with you, Lester had nothing else to do. <laughs> said, Why not come see me? You know, I mean, I gave him a chance to escape his wife for a few hours. So uh, I think he owed me as much as I owe him. And so uh, what I love uh, about our uh, friendship I only can speak for me. I have never went to bed uh, because Lester and I disagreed with anything. I I have a right to have my opinion. He have a right to have his. Uh, he don't know it, but I let him win arguments sometime, and I said, okay, you won that argument. Now you can carry me out to dinner They're just to get a free <laughs> meal out of him. Uh, but uh, when I got out of prison, uh, he made sure that him and his wife uh, – had a room for me, gave me a key to the house uh, so I could get in and out. Gave me to a, a key to his car, but he told me I couldn't drive until I got some license. Uh, the day I went and got my license, he was happy for me. He went straight and called the insurance company, told him to add my name on uh, the car and so I could uh, be insured. Uh, to this day, he have a key to my house he have keys to my car. I have keys to his house and cars. We only have one rule. You can drive. You don't have to ask nobody, can you drive? But you cannot bring that car back empty. It better have some <laughs> gas in it. So uh, we uh, go out every two weeks to get a haircut. Uh, depending on what time of day is after we get our haircut, we either going to have lunch together. We sit across from each other. And we talk to each other. We don't be on the telephone. We talk to each other. And I think uh, that way we continue to still get to know one another. And I, if I was to give any young people any advice, I'd tell them to get to know who you say your friends are. Uh, Lester and I uh, both love Auburn Tigers. Uh, we are diehard Auburn and every. Football season, we coached them to a championship. You know, <laughs> uh, one day, I'm hoping Auburn would finally hide both of us, and uh, we'll bring some championship to Auburn. I guarantee you. But uh, Lester is just uh, gut sent. You know, uh, I don't think many people would do what he did. Uh, they would have used. I just got off from work. I'm too tired to make the trip. But he never did use uh, 
any excuse. I, I remember one time he told me that gas had went up to over five dollars, and and he used premium in his car for whatever reason. Well, did <laughs> die. Yeah, 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 you know. But he would fill it up and come on down and see me, and uh, never did complain about the cost. Never did complain about being tired. And and I used to tell him all the time, listen, you just got off work. Don't worry about coming down and see me. I can talk to you on the phone. But what, uh, if anything ever brought me to tears, uh, Whitlester's, uh, I guess it's about two weeks or a month, I hadn't called. And one day the guards came in and said, Hinton, 468. And I had to answer to that number. And so they had me mail, and it was from Lester. And I'm wondering, why would he write me? And in there was about three lines, and he said, Hey, Doc, haven't heard from you. Uh, my phone number is the same. I uh, would love to hear from you. And I got to thinking, who would have wrote and said, Hey, I haven't heard from you in two weeks. I need to hear from you. And so uh, that brought me to tears as it do now, uh, the fact that he cared enough to uh, say, hey, I don't care about the phone bills. And the phone bill was expensive. It was $5.98 for the first minute and $0.98 for the next minute. And he wanted to talk the whole 15 minutes. And so uh, it just meant the world to me. And uh, he still mean the world to me. And I would just love for people to see the friendship that we have. And, and it goes without saying that Friendship don't mean you won't disagree, but you don't have to fall out. And so we disagree all the time, but we don't never fall out. All right, I'll call Nick after this. <laughs> uh, Ray, you mentioned earlier that you first met Dr. Austad because he was working to you know, help get you some compensation. Go ahead and tell us now, after 30 years, the state of Alabama put you on death row, deprived you of, <clears throat> of your own life, and how much compensation have you gotten? Is it is it $4 million? Is it $8 million? How much have How much have they given you now for 30 years of your life? The great state of Alabama have given Anthony Ray Hinton zero cent. That's less than I expected. Yeah. <laughs> That's low. What, uh, what is the story there? How is that possible? Oh, uh, this... I'm going to let doctors uh, tell it. Sure. There's, there is a state statute that says that if you're wrongfully incarcerated, you're due a minimum of $50,000 per year. And that's not counting being on death row, which you'd have to say is a little bit more right. than just being wrongfully incarcerated. But the problem is the money has to be allocated, has to be appropriated by the legislature. And... Uh, because the, once once that Ray was uh, the Supreme Court throughout his case, the state decided not to retry him again because they knew they had no case whatsoever. But as a consequence, technically, he hasn't been acquitted, right. and they're using that technicality to keep from giving him what they what they owe him. Owe him. Not even an apology, much less the money. It's it's scandalous. I hope everybody's listening. We'll write your legislator and tell them, do some, get some justice yeah. for this man after 30 years. Yeah. I, it's a no-brainer. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, Ray, you made a point earlier that uh, prosecutors have a bit of a blank check. Um, 
And I and Dr. Ross said, like you said, I think it's one thing for people to make a mistake. We can understand yes. that. People might make a mistake. But when there is, uh, you can show that there's wrongdoing, right, and, and uh, malpractice and things of that yes. no, nature, misconduct, it seems like people ought to be held accountable. But definitely, state of Alabama ought to be recuperating, you know, or, you know, compensating you for your time. Now, uh, you know, when I go to other states and people ask me, I know you don't still live in that harbor state of Alabama, and not even in the book, not when I'm up talking, do I disrespect the state that I love so well. And I said, and I said again and again, uh, when we're talking about race, some of the best people I ever met in this state was white. And so I would refuse to uh, disrespect this state the way that the state have disrespected me. I goes back to my upbringing. I am not responsible for how the state treat me, but I am responsible for how I treat the state. Uh, I could use it, but I'm not going to wake up every morning, beat my head on the wall because they won't do the right thing. The state of Alabama know that I was innocent from day one. The state of Alabama had and still have the gun. The state of Alabama could test the gun uh, they just use it as the uh, Steve said, as a loopholes to keep from paying me. Uh, but I do believe that one day those that refuse to do the right thing, they have to pay a price for it. And uh, as I say, my hands is clean, and I can't make them do the right thing. I can't uh, even uh, a million and a half dollar would not give me back the thirty years that I lost. But I think it's would symbolize that, hey, we are sorry for what happened. Uh, we didn't have anything to do with it. That was 30-some, four years ago. But justice should always be willing to say, hey, we made a mistake, and we won't apologize for it. But Yeah, that's exactly right. So many of the people, I mean, we think of this like, oh, it's a long time ago and 30 years and whatever. But really, I mean, so many of those people are still around. Yes. And even if they're not still in office or still uh, on police forces, people that are directly connected are still around. And Reed and I learned this in a very awkward way uh, not too long ago because we have lots of politicians that come on. Um, and we had a district attorney on who was running for re-election. And he was for the death penalty. And so, obviously, Reed and I are not. And, um, and I said, well, how could that be? Because let's take a situation like Mr. Hinton. And we know now that, you know, he did not commit that crime. And, here, and here's why. And he just flat out said, no, no, no. Mr. Hinton did commit that crime. And it was like, what? what? I mean, I was so taken back because after all the research and having talked to you and read so much, you know, it's confident. There's no question. So for these people that are still in office to think just wholeheartedly that you did this, it was shocking to me. Uh, well, you know, uh, it, it, it don't sound shocking to me. And a uh, politician uh, don't have backbones. Um, they lie to the American people, and they feel that the American people would never vote for him if he said, yeah, we got it wrong with Mr. Hinton. Uh, I think uh, even when people hear me uh, apologize and say I'm not angry, I forgive, I want people to realize forgiveness is not a sign of weakness. Forgiveness is a sign of strength. 
I don't know, can anybody in this room imagine how much it takes of me to forgive those men that I know, that they know, that that gun never did match, and they know that they never did have any proof that I did anything. And so for him to say that no Mr. Hinton committed that crime, uh, he is the same one that once he retired, once he uh, get out of office, He'll write a book or do a speech and say, yeah, we got it wrong. Mr. Hinton didn't commit the crime. I was wrong then. You know, I was watching the impeachment, if I could say that a minute. Sure. Uh, I'm watching Alan Dutchford. He he made a a statement about how easy it was to impeach someone Mm -hmm. and this and that. Now he don't flip. This is politician. And so I, I, I want the American people, and especially the people of Alabama, to realize this is what your politician expects. And you have to expect that's what they're going to say because they feel like if they tell the truth, you're not going to vote for them. And adversely, I will say that uh, we've talked to Senator Jones about you on the air, and I've talked to him several times off the air about you, and he, you have his full support. Oh, yes. Uh, and he's someone who thinks very highly of you, and, uh, and he, again, has said that openly on the air and then in private conversations as well. well uh, another thing, you know, that DA or no DA would tell the – people of Alabama, Mr. Hinton took a polygraph test, was given to him by an F- FBI agent, passed it. They cared more about the color of my skin than they did the results of the test. Uh, the attorney general or no other DA will even debate me on the evidence at all. Or uh, Let me say it in this way. I only have a 12th grade high school education. But I know enough about truth, and that's what is on my side, truth. If you can get M, that same DA, to come here and debate me about what he know about that case, because they still have the bullets. They still have everything that they had from the first time to convict me. Why didn't they take me back to trial? He said uh, it was based solely on the eyewitness, the one eyewitness testimony, which obviously can't be corroborated, and you had an alibi and all that. But either way, uh, oh. that was what he yeah. said. Yeah. We brought this exact same, yeah. we said that in your defense. And he said, no, but the eyewitness. And we said, yeah, but obviously you know, you're a district attorney, you know that that's not reliable. Well, but no, but, they stuck with it. Well, if I could just jump in here, this is why the criminal justice system never improves. You know, I'm a scientist. Scientists are wrong all the time. They admit they're wrong. They try to figure out what's right. That's how you improve at things. Law enforcement is the worst at admitting they made a mistake. I don't yeah. know why that is, but for some reason, and until they start admitting that they make mistakes and trying to figure out why, we're never going to get better at figuring out who's really guilty and who's only been presumed to be guilty even though they may be innocent so that doesn't surprise me at all but it's it's a it's a terrible commentary on the justice system it is yeah again more about getting it right than winning yes. that's yes. what we need to get is yep. to more more to that uh that place ray let's uh we'll just mention that uh Senator Jones is a big fan of yours. Let's say that uh, tomorrow morning you wake up and uh, Senator Jones has, has appointed you as the warden of Holman. Um, when you go in to take over that prison, what are the things that, let's assume you can't commute sentences of mm-hmm. people, and let's say there are people there who've, who've done things and, and maybe they need to be in prison. Yes. What would you do, though, as warden to change the way that prison operates um, or would you? What would you do? I would. Uh, there are so many things uh, I would do. First and foremost, I would 
treat those men like human beings. Mm. Uh, I would try my best to find the money to give them schooling uh, that they didn't get. You know, I often say, well, uh, therefore you don't look for them to come home, but like me, I did come home. Uh, Men's in general population, I exercise all the time. What do you want them to come back as? A bigger, stronger thief, murderer, whatever. Or do you want to try to educate them where they can come out and get a job? I think that if I was the warden of a home correction facility, first of all, I would try and get funding so we can hire enough guards. And I think every human that has been sent there, that no man should have to die in prison at the hand of another inmate. They do it all the time because yeah. you don't have the staffing. <clears throat> I believe that when you treat human being like human being, you have a better environment. I can speak highly of death row. The warden never did have to come on death row and do anything. Uh, that was a lot of the general population thought we was his pets, but we just didn't do anything. We had a sense of value. We was reading, we was talking, and we was learning that own up to your mistake, regardless of where that if if you end up being executed, hey, at least be a man and own up to it. So I would change the way we feed them. Uh, a warden told us that they feed us for 30 cents a day, and I believe it. I tell people when they see me, I was not always this big. Thank Lester, he the one been buying me food for the last four years. <laughs> Got me looking like this right here. But uh, I would try to feed them decent food. I would try to help them as much as I can. But those that are coming out, I truly believe we should have a program where they would have to read at least three books. When they go before the parole board, they should have to be able to tell them what those books consist of, the author, what the book was talking about. Let's put something in place that even society can say, hey, I'm willing to give you a second chance. I believe all of us deserve a second chance. And I would just try to make the prison better, not just for the right. inmate, but for the guards that works there. Mm. And I think when you do that, uh, the environment that you're around, if it's a good environment, you have good people. The worst environment, you'll bring the worst out in people. Yeah, yeah We sadly, I mean, you are such a special story and a special person because we had uh, an inmate that was released about a year ago on the show and he came on the show and, and basically just begged for help just begged just said i i, I need help i'm yes. not in a good place and and uh he wasn't able to find it. he passed away about six months after that interview mm. and um you know well you know as as a warden I, I would hate to tell but uh the drugs would be cut out at home i couldn't speak for no other prison i know uh with my method there wouldn't be no drugs brought in the home prison uh, completely. Uh, I think we just got to do more, and I would do my best to uh, go before the governor and beg for what I need. If you give me the tools to do it with, I promise you, you'll see a turnaround. And not only will the inmates appreciate it, the guards will also appreciate it. Yeah, we're talking to Anthony Ray Hinton again, the author of The Sun Does Shine, and you can see him featured in Just Mercy, the movie that's out, and of course, the book also by Brian Stevenson. Um, all right, so. Technology. Last time we were here, we talked about how things that were kind of shock, shocking to you and blew your mind when you got up. But we didn't talk about this. How about these apps on the phone? Like, isn't it crazy? Uh, I had to go to Verizon today to try to get Google put back on my phone. I, I somehow deleted it, and, and uh, I didn't mean to, but these phones just have too much on them. Oh, yeah, that's true. And for someone that uh, missed the whole... Uh, 
out party for them and trying to start late to catch up on them. I'm having a hard time catching up on this phone. Uh, I need to sign a contract. I got to drive well to Montgomery just to sign what? a contract. And so uh, I'm going down there tomorrow just to sign a contract. for. Uh, but my little nephew used to try to show me how to do it. And I said, I'm not going to worry him uh, <laughs> uh, to comprehend and show me again. But uh, you got so many apps and you got so many things. And uh, I just don't understand why everybody loves texting. I hate texting. I, tex- I think texting is dumb. I mean, if you if I can text you, why I just can't call you? Oh, because calling is so out. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, not with me and me and him. We call all the time. <laughs> but it's just, this is the modern technology that you have, and I think this is why we have lost being in touch with mm, each other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kids, now when I go and speak at schools and I have a dinner with the unenrolled student, uh, they say, Mr. Hinton, what, what is your preference of a meal? I say, I don't have one uh, preference. No one is allowed to use the phone while we're having dinner. And I tell the kids why. I think dinner, whether you're at home or whatever, uh, it should be about contact, eye-to-eye contact, get to know each other. Your phone can hold for 30 minutes or hour. And I just think that we have lost our way now. Everybody is texting at dinner. Everybody is not talking to one another. And the next thing you know, you're saying, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. Bye. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Yeah, uh, yeah dinner. I now, think- also, though, I can look at my watch and tell it to <laughs> unlock my front door, and it'll do it. So uh, that's pretty cool. Oh, it's <laughs> ever, and I have a uh, ring on my front door that oh, awesome. somebody bought yeah. me and, and gave it to me. And it's it been very helpful in the fact that UPS bring a package. Uh-huh. And I see it, and then I can call Mr. Bailey and say, hey, UPS just dropped the package off. Go down there and get it for me. And he can run down there and get it. So it has its advantage, but I just think when it comes to the human touch, we just need to get back to learning one another. And um, I think we have lost our way in that human touch. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not a... Uh, but I would think a doctor would tell you, you got to be able to touch that newborn so he get used to that touch, that yeah. human touch. And I just think we have lost it. Absolutely. So, so Lester, or Lester so, so Ray, your book would make a great movie. Your life story would make a great movie. I'm hoping we see it. But you must have thought about this. Like, if, if that happens, who would you like to play yourself like i've thought about this for myself and everybody says oh yeah brad pitt ought to play you right (laughs) so you must have thought about this and also who would who would you like for playing lester i don't i'm you know to be honest with you i haven't got off into any of the new actress but i've I've been told that uh uh, why not get denzel and i think denzel's just a little bit too old to play me uh, (laughs) for the movie Uh, uh, I have to be honest, uh, I couldn't just pick anyone right now uh, uh, by name. I'm going to leave that up to Miss Winfrey. Okay. And I know she's going to uh, pick the best person. I've had people uh, all the time say, you ought to let my son uh, play you in your movie. And I said, but the public is not going to pay to come see your song. <laughs> uh, and so people have to make money to pay back the actress and stuff. But uh, Did you just accidentally tell us that there is a movie being made and Oprah Winfrey's producing it? Yes. Uh, she's making a movie uh, about the sun does shine. And so 
I'm hoping that we can get started real soon. Uh, um, from my understanding, this strips uh, is being written and probably almost through. And so I don't ask no question. I just want to meet the two ladies that I married while I was in Brighton, <laughs> right. Sandra Bullock and uh, uh, Halle, Halle Barrett. Barrett. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, and so I'm hoping that uh, when I do meet them, I want to meet them separate, and I'm going to ask uh, one of them to marry, and I'm hoping one of them will say yes. <laughs> I can only imagine that Reed and I will play a huge role in the movie. Right. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, Ray, earlier we talked about, you know, some of the darkest times that you've had, but also, you know, I'm curious to know, now once you've uh, been exonerated and you've been out of Holman, what's one of the coolest experiences you've had as you've been making the rounds and meeting people? What What stands out to you? Uh, to be honest with you, the things that stand out uh, to me as much traveling I do is that I can get on them Escalade and just slide on up. You ain't got to walk. Uh, I love to fly. Uh, I feel comfortable here flying uh, in planes. And, yeah. Uh, but to be honest with you, it's uh, convenience of shopping. Or, you know, it's like Walmart. You can shop, grocery shop. You can go buy some fish or equipment. I mean, one shop does it all. But And make uh, choices for oh, yourself. Oh, yes. Um, uh, and that's something I didn't do for 30-some years. Yeah. And I love the fact that you can don't have to go to the store. You can shop online. But often I say, well, what if it come back too little, well too big? And there's nothing like going in the store, trying it on. But I think... If I had to pick one particular thing, though, it is the way that they have built trucks. Trucks is a luxury now. And back when I was a boy, a truck mm. was for hauling uh, furniture or coal or whatever. Now these trucks is luxury than a car. I mean, yeah. uh, you get in there and it's it's like I price one I think the other day was a Ford F one fifty that thing was sixty seven thousand yeah, dollars. And I asked the salesman, where the bathroom? Which one is that? <laughs> uh, I know it got a bathroom in here for sixty seven thousand dollars, but I just think what man have done in the convenience of making a truck ride smooth, hmm. uh C D player, air conditioning and everything, uh I never thought I would live to see the day that would happen and I never thought I would live to see the day that uh, this telephone could fit in your pocket and you could take pictures, you can email, you can text, you can download. I mean, it, it, it is endless what a telephone can do. And as she said, he can uh, unlock his door. He can, uh, it, it, it just, modern technologies have blown me away. It's a brave new world. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of work to be done, uh, you know, just Mercy makes that clear. Your book makes that clear. Um, I teach young people. What advice would you have for young people? What, what would you like to see young people doing to lay the foundation for a better world moving forward, given everything you've been through? Well, I first, uh, I have to. Everywhere I go, I apologize to young people for the failure of my generation and the generation in front of me. I truly believe that every generation should have made it easier mm -hmm. for the next generation to succeed in life. And we have failed them. Um, and I want young people to never feel that they don't have a voice. Uh, as Brian Stevenson says, stand up when you're being told to sit down. Uh, and I want young people to 
realize that their opinion do matter. Or uh, as a school teacher, you should always open the doors that uh, whatever you want to say, whatever you want to spread, mm-hmm. say it. Perhaps we can lead you in the right direction. Perhaps or uh, it pans out to be nothing. But I want young people to realize that this country, they're going to inherit. And if we don't start fixing it in a hurry, they won't be inheriting much. And I say often to uh, my audience, the thing that I feel the most is that if we don't start loving one another, we are bound to destroy one another. And at the end of this journey, we're going to ask, what do we do? And I think it's high time that we start making this country better for the young people to take over and succeed in life. And I encourage them to stay in school. I encourage them to learn as much as they can and pick a, a career that where they can give back uh, to society. You know, I tell my students probably on a weekly basis to read your book, huh. uh, to read uh, Just Mercy. I know you're a reader. If you had to pick one book outside of those two, uh, you mentioned earlier some James Baldwin. What, what's a book you think young people ought to check out if they haven't? Uh, I haven't read Michelle Obama's book. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> you haven't read it yet? I haven't read it yet. Uh, I haven't really had uh, time to yeah. read. Like, well, you know, when I was on the road, I didn't have nothing but time. Yeah. And now uh, working in Montgomery and flying everywhere, uh, uh you, but you know, people ask me what is my favorite book that I've read, yeah. and it come to a surprise to some people. But my favorite book that I've read, *The Killer Mockingbird*. Oh, it's yeah. mine too. And the reason I picked *The Killer Mockingbird*, I am, and I was Thomas. And it, the book amazed me that it's like, how did somebody know that this situation would happen in? Uh, 1985 and when I read it I said this is me all over how did she know and so when I read it I read it with emotion I read it with uh, a sense that the justice system have never been kind Uh, and so besides the two books that you just named uh, those are the two the uh, Brian Stevenson book used to be number two, but yeah. mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the sun does shine knocked him to number three. Yeah. <laughs> the, the thing about Just Mercy and, and Walter's case that stood out to me so much was Monroeville. Like, yeah. how did we not learn lessons? Right. Like, we all read, and we all read To Kill a Mockingbird. We've all seen it. How did Monroeville Absolutely. not see this repeating itself? I, I don't know. I mean, it's amazing. But, but, you know, speaking of that, I have to ask the question. And maybe one of you can give me an answer. How is it that a sheriff could stay in office three decades later? I, I mean, it, it bothers me. And I said earlier, I don't blame the politician. I blame the voters for who we keep electing. And I just cannot understand how the sheriff stayed in office for three more decades. Have you heard about or kept up with the case of Curtis Flowers in Mississippi? Do you know about that case? I've heard of it. It's a a similar deal where you just find yourself thinking, how in the world? If people have not listened to season two of the podcast In the Dark, you you just have to go start it right now. Um, Because for every, you know, 
the sun does shine and for just mercy there's also the curtis flowers story and and that's the question how how does the sheriff stay in that position how does the prosecutor doug evans stay in his position um and you know a student of mine recently when we were reading just mercy said can't can't this be reformed can't we do something about this i said yes we Mm -hmm. can but it's going to take all of us knowing the truth yes. and then advocating for change and making sure that people in these positions of power don't stay there unless Absolutely. they're willing to confront it. Uh, you know, people ask me all the time, Mr. Hinton, uh, what is it that we can do? And I tell them, you got to start voting. You've got to. And you got to take the people that have no intention of making this, this system better out of office and you got to start putting people in office that really is advocating justice for everybody. And if they get in there and start doing the same thing, oust them until we get it right. Yeah. I mean, we cannot afford to keep at the pace that we are doing. And there's too many people. Is cases is like mine. And, and this is not by accident. This is on purpose. Yeah. And I just think that we should hold our sheriff, our DA, uh, to a higher standard. I'm in the process now of trying to start at EJI a integrity uh, unit, mm-hmm. uh, trying to get DAs to say, hey, don't be so quick to rush to judgment. Uh, make sure that your evidence is what you say it is. Uh, because when innocent people go to prison, the justice system suffering, we all suffer from it. And so, uh, these cases is not just something it is designed, and it is the way the system is. And I, I hate to say it, I tell African American, how can you expect a system to protect you when it was never informed to protect you? It never was made to uh, protect you. And so we got to make it all right. And I'm just hoping that the listeners, will, regardless of what as I say, what side are, let's do what is right. We got to beat the drum. Absolutely. That's right. Mr. Hinton, you've been more than gracious with your time. Thank you so much. Thank you uh, so much. Well, we just could not be more honored to have you here. I'm super proud of you uh, and what you've done with a terrible situation. And somehow you've done something that I know I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And most everyone that I talk to uh, feels the same way. So it means a lot to us that you would take the time to come hang out with us. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you, uh, Dr. Steve, for uh, being my friend and advocating for me. And I'm just hoping that one day that... Alabama will wake up and realize that we are not enemies. Uh, we should always fight for the right thing and and stop being uh, with no backbone. Stand up. And if you get out, uh, out of office, you know, I go to bed at night not because anyone asks me for forgiveness. And I say it again and I say it every night. I forgave those men that did this to me so I could sleep good at night. And it's about time that the politician uh, the judges and all did the same thing. Uh, do what is right so you can sleep good at night. Do the right thing. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Rosset, thank you. Well, my pleasure. Honored to share a microphone with uh, Ray. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>